Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this month's UK Roundtable, we discuss the impact of the Sue Gray report on Westminster and how businesses are adapting to ongoing supply chain and personnel shortages, with Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, Olivia Gleeson, UK Government Relations Expert, Karen Johnson, UK Head of Retail and Wholesale Corporate Bank, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. If you are new to investing, want to learn more about investing, or want tips on how to manage your long-term financial plans, check out our sister podcast channel, Money Plan, available on Apple, Spotify and SoundCloud. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. There is plenty going on, as seems as always, from the latest developments in Westminster to the latest on the UK economy. We've hopefully got you all covered this week. We are very grateful as ever to be able to call on Olivia, one of our in-house experts on the British political context. We also have Will to talk about the latest on the UK economy and some of the other bits and bobs that continue to make for such a stormy backdrop for investors. Last but certainly not least, we have Karen Johnson, who focuses on consumer businesses for our corporate bank to give us the latest from the front line. So, Will, set the scene for us with regards to the UK. There's still plenty going on. Yes, Sarah, uh, you're right. There is a load going on. I would say that, and sorry, hello, everybody. Happy Friday. The uh, In the UK, the data, and this is not unique to the UK, but the data are not speaking with one voice. But the, the sense continues that, you know, that black clouds are gathering over the economy uh, or the sort of, you know, the near future for the economy, which is primarily a function of surging energy and food costs. You're not actually seeing it kind of broadly in the high frequency data, you know, things like restaurant bookings, cinema trips, geolocation statistics and so on, or, or not clearly anyway. Uh, and actually, the latest information we have on the jobs market w- was pretty strong still. However, you are seeing kind of swooning business confidence. So the latest batch of purchasing manager indices, where basically it's a questionnaire that gets sent off to purchasing managers around the country uh, for companies around the country, and they fill in their current state. And we also know that the Bank of England has to try and cool that jobs market in order to bring inflation expectations uh, to heal, or at least to try. So you are seeing some normalization of pandemic distortions. You can see that in the volume of flights leaving from Gatwick and Heathrow, but inflation and the battle against it are set to make for some tough months ahead uh, for UK households. And one big on, uh, unknown here, obviously, is, uh, and there is another reason why we're very pleased to have Olivia today, is that uh, it, it is the government response. There appears to be something brewing, but the scale and detail will be really, really important. So Olivia's crystal ball will be, we'll all be listening later. Excellent. Thanks, Will. Um, perhaps before we get to Olivia, can I bring you in, Karen? To, does that correspond to what you're hearing from the consumer business? Yeah, it, it, it does, Sarah. So, I mean, consumer businesses are facing a number of challenges this year, from inflationary pressures to supply chain, and now also the question of consumer demand. In the first part of the year, in quarter one, we saw as hospitality and leisure opened up, we really started to see consumers transferring their spending to leisure activities. And that also put supported clothing, holidays, health and beauty retailers, you know, as consumers invested in their wardrobes um, as they were going out and having some fun. But in April, we saw really a month of two halves. Travel, holiday and family gatherings around Easter really helped drive spend over a key weekend. But post-Easter... What Will mentioned about rising energy costs and inflation was starting to impact on spending. 
For example, there were signs consumers were starting to reassess their portfolio of subscriptions and cancel the ones they didn't use. And we are seeing and customers are telling us that they're seeing consumers being really cautious about what they're spending. They'd really like a, a bargain or looking at own labels or, you know, looking at deals to reduce costs. So that's helping maintain sales volumes at the moment. But yes, I think there are um, stormy clouds on the horizon. Thanks, Karen. And maybe can you comment a little bit around supply chain concerns within the retail goods? Are we seeing the situation improve? Yeah, I mean, I think the good news is that many retailers have developed contingency plans to deal with their supply chain concerns following the start of the pandemic, especially in relation to goods manufactured in China. I mean, this result has resulted in quite a lot of nearshoring of production, a greater supply base, uh, ranges of logistics options which has really helped to um, mitigate some of the supply chain concerns. And ultimately, what we have seen from many of our larger retailers is they've actually brought forward some of their stock purchases. Um, So the stock, for example, for the autumn winter ranges are already, um, much of it is already onshore at the moment. There are a few sectors that are continuing to struggle due to the worldwide shortage of semiconductors and chips, which are key components in electrical goods and motor vehicles. Uh, hence, the availability and range of stock continues to be a concern in, in, in those areas. Uh, what I would say, though, is the full impact of the conflict in Ukraine is yet to fully be felt on the, on the supply chain and prices. And obviously, this is an area retailers are continuing to keep a close eye on. And Karen, sorry to jump in. It's so interesting, such useful colour when I only get to see quite a lot of the statistics. But the, the, what about the staffing situation? I mean, that's something that we hear a lot about kind of top down, about the troubles of hiring and retaining staff. Is that, um, have you got any sort of you know, colour you can give us on the UK on your patch? Yeah, I mean, the recruitment of staff is is a key challenge and it is primarily in the frontline roles in stores and distribution centres. I was actually at the Retail Week conference yesterday and it was uh, interesting that a whole day was split equally between discussing pe- uh, planet and people. There's a considerable investment in retention by trying to improve well-being, providing training to line managers, as well as encouraging sort of development and careers in retail and then it just being a job. Um, there's lots of different ways people are going about trying to recruit people. Um, you know, people have been seeking people who are passionate about brands and what it stands for, and uh, to those that have been tech savvy and supporting customers in a different way. So I think a lot of the retailers are actually looking at the way they recruit and the type of people recruit being different to try and make it a more attractive role. We're also seeing because many retailers are really good at supporting the local communities. Uh, and we're seeing quite a number working with charities such as the Princess Trust to support young people who are at risk of being left behind and helping them secure work, which is another way of recruiting long-term employees into businesses. Fascinating. Thanks, Karen. Well, we mentioned China already there, but I guess before we move on to Partygate and the other stories, how does the international economy differ from the one we just talked about in the UK? Yeah, just, yes. Uh, sorry, I was just also just on what Karen said. I mean, it does sort of uh, give a little bit more evidence, a little bit more colour to that idea that the contract between employer and employee is different, not, you know, maybe subtly, but maybe profoundly to what it was previous to the, um, to the pandemic. But anyway, sorry, on to your question, Sarah. Yes, you are seeing a slowdown in the US begin to materialise too. Uh, again, sort of detecting the actual signal on underlying growth patterns beneath the 
blizzard of noise or the, the sort of incoming data it, it's complicated further by you know the unwinding of pandemic distortions so here too uh you know karen mentioned this you continue to see a switch from goods to services spending you also have this huge excess savings pile again we've talked about this a lot and you, you know regular listeners will know a lot about this it, it, it's there is this pile also in the uk and europe it was amassed primarily as a function of uh, pandemic restricted you know as the pandemic restricted opportunities to spend but the problem here or the interesting color really with regards to sort of future expectations and the path ahead is how evenly distributed that pile of excess savings is. And we don't know. We don't get very good data on this. It's mainly done through surveys and we get very patchy information. The sense in the UK is that it's quite unevenly distributed, i.e., you know, a lot of work has gone into establishing that it's likely those excess savings have really accrued to the top 40% of households by income distribution. There is some suspicion that it might be a little bit more evenly distributed in the US, but it's quite difficult to be able to, to like put facts on the ground as such. The relevance here for us is that that how those savings are distributed will be very important in deciding the next few months ahead. Not only because, you know, in the UK and the US and Europe, lower income households tend to be those which are going to spend more of their disposable income on, by necessity, on energy and food. And so, whereas the higher up the income uh, sort of ladder you go, uh, you tend to see more spending on services, less spending on goods, but also something called a higher marginal propensity to save. So you, sh- you tend to see the sort of the richer households squirrel away more of that excess, um, excess savings or, or potentially. So that, you know, that's a really key thing. Uh, with regards to the outlook for the US and European and UK economy in the months ahead that is a bit of an unknown, but something that sort of, you know, we're going to find colour on depending on as we go along. China, uh, it's still battling Omicron and incoming data points have been beginning to speak of the damage done. There are some tentative good news points, as I've said, but we've said it a lot over the last few months. Um, but China policy is, uh, you know, China, there is a real challenge ahead for China policymakers. You are seeing in the last week some attempts to stabilise the very wobbly property market. But, you know, the mix of Omicron, you know, this very transmissible variant and the zero COVID strategy or sort of, you know, shades of it, they're not a happy mix for the economy. So overall, the world economy has slowed a bit. Inflation may be peaking in some jurisdictions, likely not yet in Europe and the UK, unfortunately. But we're still at a very complicated economic juncture. In our opinion, still, the next global economic recession is not imminent. Um, But like I say, policymakers have a real job to do to keep the show on the road. That's central bankers and governments over the next next few months in particular, one suspects. Excellent. Makes sense, Will. So, Olivia, we've had a very busy week in Westminster um, to insert into all that chaotic domestic and international economic backdrop. You got any comments for us? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, top of mind, we've obviously got the long awaited uh, Sue Gray reporters here in this latest instalment of, you know, topsy turvy ride, I think you mentioned that is British politics at the moment. Now, I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast would have read the headlines by now or even seen the photos. But To recap briefly, you know, Gray definitively concluded that the events which took place under investigation were not in line with COVID guidance. And she, you know, more broadly condemned the culture in government that allowed these breaches to take place. I mean, there was some more slightly positive elements. I should also add, you know, she did mention she was satisfied with the changes to uh, the management of Downing Street over the past few months, including sort of new guidance on the consumption of alcohol in the workplace and sort of other measures. So, 
you know, where where do we stand? Now, you know, Sue Gray herself didn't opine on any sort of disciplinary action to be taken on the part of senior government colleagues. It wasn't her place to do so. And there is a sort of possibility, I should mention, that the Privileges Committee could open an inquiry and they could possibly discipline the Prime Minister. We'll have to wait and see for that. But I think, you know, let's remember that the Prime Minister's fate, you know, lands squarely in the hands of his Conservative Party colleagues on this. You know, only they can truly hold him accountable for what took place uh, during the pandemic. Now, we don't know if the report has yet sort of translated in, into any additional letters being sent into the 1922 committee. You know, there's no intelligence to suggest we've seen a sudden surge. But, you know, I should add that, you know, the numbers could all the time be quietly building with every sort of, you know, perceived government misstep. So it's always a possibility that we reach that crucial threshold um, at a sort of unknown time. And, you know, the only other thing I'd sort of mention is that we aren't seeing a slew of sort of, you know, senior Tory MPs or, or ministers, of course, to go on the record and criticise the prime minister. So there is every chance that the party have forgiven him or, you know, more practically, you know, the party had sort of quite desperate to move on and put party gate and the pandemic behind them. And I think that's exactly, you know, the, the type of approach the government is going to try to do. And we're already sort of seeing they want to draw a line under this chapter of the scandal and start sort of win back public trust on actual politics, I'd, I'd call it, which in the current climate, of course, is, you know, no mean feat. They've got historically um, low approval ratings at the moment. And of course, I think you mentioned the cost of living crisis is spiralling. So the prime minister and his cabinet, you know, do have a pretty almighty task ahead of them to try sort of build forward from from the current precipice. Oh, thank you. And yeah, I just want to pick up on that cost of living crisis. There does seem to be momentum behind some of the extra actions from the government to try and alleviate the growing suffering of a large chunk of UK households. What more are we hearing on this? Yeah, it's definitely very, very topical. So I think, you know, if we cast our mind back to March when I spoke on the podcast following the Chancellor's budget statement then. I think I did mention sort of intense public scrutiny around what was perceived to be a sort of supposed omission on cost of living measures. And I think, you know, now fast forward to, well, end of May, aren't we? I think it's fair to say the pressure on the government to act, you know, has only burdened. So, uh, you know, remember then the, the reasons the government were potentially being cautious with coming forward with a package sort of related to the cost pressures with the public purse and potentially also some unknowns about how bad this cost of living crisis would get before they needed to act. But I think, you know, as we record today, we are actually expecting an announcement imminently. So it feels like the government has reached the conclusion that they do need to do something. Now, I always try to avoid, you know, nailing my colours to a mask with predictions. It will, will always comes back and taunts me with them. So I'll, uh, I'll try hedge my bets. But I think, you know, the, the type of announcements we might see later today, you know, uh, well, what we definitely are reading and hearing and is about that one-off windfall tax um, targeting excess profits in the energy sector. Now, you know, a lot of details remain up in the air. It's not clear if it's going to be oil or gas or, or both. And of course, we've seen, you know, really conflicting opinions within the Tory party to date on this type of measure. But I think as we stand today, it's more likely than not we'll see a, a one-off windfall tax announced. Now, what would that money be spent on? Well, we think the the Chancellor, based on his previous hints, is in favour of quite targeted support for the most vulnerable members of society. So anything from sort of one-off payments to the poorest households to sort of cuts to their their specific taxes to help with spiralling spiralling bills. And then there's also speculation around sort of broad-based measures around you know potential cuts to VAT or or council tax. But I think it really remains to be seen whether the government 
want to go that far in in tackling um, the spiraling bills. So I think, you know, either way, expectations are riding extremely high on whatever package of support the government will come forward. They'll be really desperate to get the balance right. You know, their measures need to be generous enough to answer, you know, these calls that something must be done, but not so generous that those in the party calling for sort of a more measured fiscal uh, government response won't hit out so you know very very fine line but we'll have to wait and see it's so difficult isn't it i mean yeah i'm glad i'm nowhere near government nor ever will be but you know the the, the problems here are distributional like you say and there will be a response from the bank of england you would have thought or you know if it's a big package yeah uh, in aggregate you know you're going to have to see interest rates or the path of interest rates adjusted to account for that but yes i have to say rather them than me making these decisions definitely Excellent. Well, I think that's all we've got time for. So thanks very much, Olivia, Karen and Will for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners. We look forward to joining you again next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.